Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Playground Entertainment's Colin Callender about returning to Wolf Hall ten years after his first award-winning adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novels. BBC Studios' Matt Ford on growing the 1% Club and the continued resilience of Unscripted. Plus Big Talk's Kent and Allen and Blue Ant's Lillehurst on this week's London TV screenings and the challenges of the current marketplace. The Mirror and the Light is the final instalment of late author Hilary Mantel's trilogy charting the rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell, chief advisor to King Henry VIII in 16th century England. The first two novels were adapted for the BBC and PBS masterpiece in 2015 by writer Peter Strohan and director Peter Kosminski via Colin Callender's Playground Entertainment and all three media's company pictures. Wolf Hall was an award-winning six-part series starring Mark Rylance and Damian Lewis, and the pair, together with Struan and Kosminski, plus many other members of cast and crew, have been reunited to bring Mantell's concluding tome to television. Filming on Wolf Hall, The Mirror and the Light began in November and will continue until March, with the series expected to air in 2025, a full decade after its predecessor. And the title was among the highlights of distributor Banerjee Wright's slate at this week's London TV screenings. Canada spoke to Michael Pickard about the show, its slow gestation, and why he believes it will be another example of British drama at its finest. We're speaking for the occasion of, of the return of Wolf Hall, The Mirror and the Light, yes. which is uh, 10 years in the making, I guess. Um, I mean, it's been a long Finally. time since the first series aired. Tell us a bit about what's been going on behind the scenes and why it has taken a decade for you to to get back into into production for, for the sequel or, or the third. It's based on the third book, isn't it, in Hilary Mantel's trilogy? Yeah, um, Hilary Mantel wrote a trilogy of books. The first Wolf Hall covered the first two and the new series covers The Mirror and the Light, which is her third book. And uh, we're really excited to be able to bring it to the screen and to reunite Peter Kosminski's extraordinary team and uh, get them all back into production. It's been a challenge because over the years, a combination of having the scripts written and then, of course, all the actors have had big careers doing other movies or TV series or whatever. So it's been complicated to actually bring everyone back together. But we seem to have found a moment when we could make it work. And then, of course, in the middle of all that, we had COVID. So taken a while but um the series is a contempt is is a contemporary period drama that really sheds a light um on the politics of power and the price that that people pay when they wield that power um so in some senses the story is as contemporary as ever it's a story of loyalty and betrayal it just happens to have taken place 500 years ago yeah can you i mean can you maybe just tease a bit of the story what where do we pick up the story and and what can you tell us about perhaps some of the events that that will feature as we continue to follow uh mark ryland is uh, Thomas Cromwell through history. Yeah, we start the story. Uh, uh, Anne Boleyn has been killed, executed by Henry VIII. He's on the verge of marrying Jane Seymour. And the story really follows Cromwell in the last four years of his life. He came from poor, lowly background. He's now become the most feared person um, in the UK. Um, and his relationship with Henry uh, is right at the centre of the show. And he has to navigate this difficult, dangerous world of Henry VIII's court and try and 
and by navigate a fine line between doing the right thing and surviving. I mean, what was it? You, you kind of touched on it there. It's a contemporary period drama, which sounds, you know, a, a complex thing to put together. I mean, but it was probably one of the secrets of the show's success, wasn't it? Very modern themes, but everyone's walking around dressed in, in period costume. I mean, what was it? How, how do you go about achieving that kind of blend? Well, firstly, two things. I mean, let me say this. In many ways, the show is a perfect example of the sort of a production that Playground wants to make. It's a story uh, that speaks to a contemporary audience is the first thing. You know, we're telling this story in a world post uh, Mad Men, post um, Sopranos, post Breaking Bad, post all those series where in the, at the centre of those series, there is a character who is sort of a morally complex character um, that sort of sometimes has his foot on either side of a sort of, of the moral line of doing the right thing or not. And I think audiences increasingly now want to find and want to want want to see characters who have are multi-layered and complex. Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, um, Frank Underwood, uh, Walter White. And Thomas Cromwell is just that sort of character. And well, the way Peter Kosminski directed the show was part of the success of the series. Hearing Mantel's book was told entirely from Thomas Cromwell's point of view. And Peter Kosminski, having a documentary background, tells the story, films the story entirely from Thomas Cromwell's point of view. So the camera follows Cromwell into rooms and into a world. And we, the audience, only discover things when Thomas Cromwell himself discovers things. And so in many ways, we are we are entering this world with Thomas Cromwell. And so we have a very intimate uh, association and connection with the story. And this second drama is going to be even more moving and emotionally powerful than the first. In in the first six hours, Cromwell is a sort of implacable character. Uh, part of the joy of watching the series was trying to imagine what was going on inside Thomas Cromwell's head, because Mark Rylance was such a, an extraordinary actor. In this series, Thomas Cromwell's emotional range is greater. He knows quietly that he's probably doomed, but hasn't quite accepted that. And he's beginning to explore and re-examine his life and certain characters come into his life that didn't come into his life before and he goes on an emotional journey that that, that is very different from what we saw in the first season. So as successful as the first season was, I think this will have a, a very sort of added quality to it that will really draw in the audience. But in terms of, you know, what, why why we wanted to do it, you know, as I said, that there are three or four qualities to a drama that define what a playground drama is. The first, as I say, is a story that, speak, that speaks to a contemporary audience, even if it's historical. The second thing is, is what Wolf Hall did then and now is bring together an extraordinary set of talented people from behind the camera and in front of the camera from film, television and theatre. I mean, I was just looking at this the other day. We have a, a Booker Prize winning novelist. We have an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. We have a seven-time BAFTA award-winning director. We have Tony Olivier Emmy and Oscar-winning actors. And we have a Golden Globe Emmy and BAFTA-winning producer. I mean, that's about as a high-quality prestige project as you can imagine. The, the third important thing about the project is it's the sort of drama we do best in the UK. And increasingly, with the streamers sort of beginning to sort of dominate the world, there is a place for this sort of British drama that might not otherwise get made. And for that, I have to really reach out and thank the BBC, um, Banerjee and Masterpiece, because they have been 
enormously supportive and they recognized the value of telling this story because nobody else in the world would have funded it the way they have. And the fourth thing is, is you know, there's a lot of talk about global television and the global market. What has been proven time and time again is the culturally specific dramas that are specific to a time and place are, are the most successful dramas in the global marketplace. And it's partly because I think audiences around the world want to be taken on a journey to somewhere they don't know. And actually the flip side of that, that's why in America, um, for example, right now, German, French, Spanish, Scandinavian dramas are doing so well because it's fresh and we're, we're being taken somewhere we haven't been before. So the cultural specificity of Wolf Hall, the fact that it's being shot on the real locations, the fact that it's based, as I say, on Hilary Mantel's Booker Prize winning book, is that that's right at the core of why this show was a success the first time and hopefully will be a success this time around. And I mean, looking back on season one and its international kind of appeal, did did you see that, that audiences around the world picked up the show and, and were as enamoured with it as, as British audiences were and, and in the US as well? Yeah, it's funny enough, when, when I first was considering buying the book, various people around said, you know, there's been the Tudors, this car- this territory being covered, and no one's going to buy it. And I said, no, 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 that's, that, that's the mistake. The Tudors has actually created an opportunity to do Wolf Hall because this is the real story and this is a sophisticated but entertaining and high quality production and story that, that actually um, complements the Tudors. So in some senses, the Tudors provided an entry point for audiences to actually investigate and enjoy Wolf Hall. Absolutely. How many episodes is, is the new series going to be? Six, it's six episodes. This is what, yeah, I was going to ask because um, obviously season one was six episodes, but you're adapting two books. This one is six episodes, but it's just one book. What kind of pacing or, or other adaptation issues did that throw up perhaps um, during the writing process as you kind of maybe had more time, perhaps less story to, to tell over those six episodes? Well, I, as I said earlier, I think what distinguishes this next six hours is the journey into Thomas Cromwell's emotional life um, and inner life. And that is, you know, the, the essence of great drama. It's what Hilary Mantel did with the book. And so there is much more in this series about Cromwell and his personal life in the context of the world in which he's living, the dangerous world in which he's living, where uh, making a slip up, making a mistake in a world of politics then ended up with having your head cut off. But in this this drama, there's more time spent with Cromwell re-examining what he's done in the past and where his life is going in a way that wasn't part of the storytelling in the first six hours. And, and I mean, just talk me through that adaptation process itself. I know from season one, Peter Kosminski was very uh, full of praise for Peter Strawn when he sort of said he managed to distill what a thousand pages of, of a novel into six beautiful scripts. You know, the first drafts were exemplary from what I've read. So, I mean, what is that process like for you and Peter working together perhaps, or does Peter just go away and, and sort of come back a year later oh. <laughs> with well, manuscripts? You know, what what's really tragic is that, of course, Hilary Mantel died during the process of writing it. And so, in many ways, this six hours is a tribute to Hillary. Um, what was what well, we were very lucky. The two Peters, Peter Kosminski and Peter Strawn, were very lucky that they were able to have spent time with Hillary, uh, talking about the book, asking her questions, and exploring what Hillary was interested in in the book before they started writing. Before P- 
Felix Strawn started writing. So um, they had that with them all the time. And what happened was Peter Strawn went off to create a shape to the six hours to find the arc, to find the emotional arc of the story, to understand what story is being told at the, at the center of it, what's the big idea of the story. And he went off and wrote. Um, it was complicated in terms of distilling the book again into six hours and doing right by Hillary's extraordinary writing. And then there was a collaborative period between the two Peters um, and uh, so that we could actually understand how the show would be shot. It's what happens all the time with every writer. Um, and uh, I think we've ended up with a, a remarkable set of scripts. Is it an adaptation that rests solely with the source material or is, is Peter going back to, to real history and, and pulling other elements in that perhaps no, weren't the, in the, the novel? The, the drama has been very faithful to Hillary's book and Hillary had um, a very specific view of events and the, the, the adaptation is is very reverential of, of the source material. And I guess for you as the as the producer sort of making the show, how do you look back on, on season one and perhaps what were the lessons or, or the things that you think you did right and well and, and where were the things you could improve on that you've sort of carried with you for, for 10 years waiting to make the sequel? It's a good question. I mean, I don't think any of us expected that the first season would uh, engender the sort of love and critical acclaim that, that it received. So knowing what that achieved and it won the battle after it won the Golden Globe, you know, that's quite a tough act to follow. So I think Pete, the two Peters, Peter Strawn, Peter Skibinski and myself, we were very committed to, to try and make sure that this next six hours would match that. And um, I, I think that uh, rather than actually what, what what did we think didn't work that we wanted to fix in this, what we were actually looked at is what did work. What was it about the first six hours that was so successful? And we must, you know, and understanding what that was, we wanted to make sure that we we creatively, that the new series would creatively embody the same qualities that made the first one so successful. I mean, can, can you give us some examples? What were some of those things that you did think? Well, the, well, the, big, the big thing was the way Peter shot it with his um, his cinematographer, Gavin Finney. And, uh, you know, the, this idea of handheld camera taking us into the world. But the other thing was this mix of talent, of established talent and newcomers. So, you know, bringing back Mark Rylance, Damian Lewis and um, Jonathan Price, and then then bringing in Harriet Walter, Timothy Spall, and Harry Melling. Um, you know, putting together a sort of glorious royalty of British acting, but at the same time bringing in young actors, new actors, and giving them a chance to shine. Uh, Kate Phillips. There's a wonderful uh, young actress called Lilith Lesser in, in the series who plays Princess Mary, and an extraordinary Belgian actor actress, excuse me, that we found called Ellie DeLang, who play. I'm not going to tell her what tell you what it plays because it would be. Uh, it would be uh, it would be uh, a spoiler, but you know we've spent a lot of time finding and casting an exciting repertoire of, of, of young actors and mixing them up with the established actors. And also, again, as I say, actors from stage film and television. I mean, when Mark Rylance did the show originally, um, he'd been primarily known in the UK and even in the US for his theatre work. Um, now he's an Oscar-winning actor. Damien Lewis has since doing that starred in Billions, which was an enormous success in the US. So, um, 
you know, we love that that bringing together that theatre, television, and film mix. Yeah, absolutely. And so, for you then, in the in the interim, have you, you know, how, how have you sort of been able to keep everyone together while also, you know, waiting, I guess, for for the project to reach you, various you know landmarks. The juggling act. You know, you know the guy in, in the in the circus that has plates spinning on sticks and he's constantly trying to keep all the plates here. That's exactly what it was like. Yeah. So there were times when I thought, oh my god, we're never, you know, that's not going to work. And then suddenly something comes, someone comes available. Then somebody takes a play. Then somebody takes something else. Um, so uh, it was it was a juggling act, and um, a COVID made it even more complicated. So we had a couple of dates when we were going to shoot earlier, which we had to d- delay. But uh, we're there. We're in the middle of production mm-hmm. it's looking extraordinary the mm-hmm. actors are as great as they ever were and interestingly in some ways what's interesting is to have actors who have played a role that they played 10 years ago but playing the same role five minutes after the first season let ended so they're, they're bringing a sort of a further depth uh, to the parts in part because of their own lives and their own life experiences that has happened over the last 10 years so it's it's very rich and uh, it, it's very exciting to see it come together. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that, yeah, 10 years distilled down to five minutes in, in screen time. I mean, are there continuity issues you've had to deal with? I guess besides actors aging, I mean, has anyone come back looking very different or, or have you had to sort of cover no, no, other no, not, things? Not yet, not so far. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And yeah, you mentioned halfway through production then. I mean, are, are all the locations back and, and things like that you've managed to secure or, or keep hold of over it's the 85 over the 10 years? days entirely on location in national trust properties all over the world. Um, and one of the challenges was we knew that we couldn't shoot in national trust properties and those sorts of public spaces during the height of the tourist, tourism seasons in the summer because uh, we experienced last time, you know, we had to shoot around Japanese tourists at, some, at various points. So we knew that the only time of the year we could really shoot was toward the end of the, the, end of the year or the beginning of the year. And of course, we ended up straddling cr- Christmas and New Year starting in November and ending in March. So it's been a challenge to get all those locations back. I mean, that, that you know, I'm not a producer, obviously. I just write about TV, but I mean, it sounds like, is that a massive headache, 85 days on location? I mean, how do you how it's do you juggle that and keep the, the train moving? It, it's 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 a challenge. I mean, it's a real four-dimensional challenge. I I, uh, I, I have to take, take off my hat to, uh, to the production team, but um, the, the fun of it is that we are taking the actors to the places where the events took place and they are walking into rooms where the events took place and that adds a extraordinary sense of being there and we one of the things that we did last time and we're, we're doing again is we're lighting the show with natural light what's interesting of course is in the 10 years since the first time the digital cameras have really advanced and so we're able to really shoot in situations using candles and so on uh, but protect the ability for the audience really to see what's on the screen so it's it's glorious yeah i mean that, that's another issue you get sometimes with period dramas isn't it when people do shoot with natural light, but then the viewers will complain that it was too dark. They couldn't see the actors. They couldn't see what was going on. Is that something you have to try and mitigate against? Or do you well, just, you know, that's, you know, that's what you want to do? You know, there were some people that felt that way about the first season. The thing I've learned, having been an executive as, as much as well as a producer, is that one or two people complaining, everybody suddenly thinks the whole world is complaining. There were a couple of people who tweeted about it the first time round. But when we analysed really how many people were 
complaining. It was just a handful. Well, no, but we have we have been very we, we've been very uh, attentive and careful about making sure that even if the environment is in the is dark, the faces are all you can always see the faces because the real story of Wolf Hall are the faces of what's going on inside these people's heads, and that, that's the course the genius of Mark Rylance and indeed Damien Lewis as actors. The real test of a great actor is can they portray a character by doing nothing? When they're just still, are they still telling the story? And that is true of Mark Rylance and Damien Lewis. And the second test is can the actor do two or three things at once? Can they actually project or actually create and sort of explore different conflicting emotions at the same time? And again, um, the brilliance of Mark and the brilliance of Damien is that they can do just that. You know, obviously they're very experienced actors, both of them, both, you know, working behind the scenes. They know their craft very well. Are they very involved behind the scenes with you and, and the Peters to sort of suggest notes or how they want to play a scene or, or anything like that at all? Or do they come on and just, you know, do their role on screen? No, I, th- I think what what's, I think what's glorious to watch is that Peter has a really remarkable relationship with, with the actors. Well, actually with all the actors. And he rehearses more than one would normally rehearse a drama. And on the set, he is... Uh, sort of intimately and quietly working with the actors and I know for a fact because they've said it to me they all have enormous respect for Peter's directing and um, so it is a symbiotic relationship between the director and the actors in a very very real way on this show Fantastic and I mean just broadening it out slightly I mean again going back to the 10 years between the two shows I mean the industry has changed remarkably hasn't it over over the decade and, and you see both sides of it in the UK and the US I mean what are your thoughts just just on where we are at the moment in the industry as a producer and, and where those challenges are or opportunities, perhaps, that if you're looking on the brighter side of things. Well, I, I, look, it's a very exciting time right now. You're right, the industry has changed in very dramatic ways, but in some senses, it's remained completely the same. Uh, I mean, the challenge of creating quality programming is the same, and the audience's desire um, for quality programming remains the same. And I've always felt that if you follow the great material, everything else will fall into place. And and I, uh, this this Wolf Hall couldn't be a finer example of just that. Absolutely. And, and let me let me make the other point. It, 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 I said earlier on, which is that you know it's British drama it, that travels in the way that so many British travel dramas have travelled internationally. Um, and I think that you know that's not being made by all the new platforms out there. This this is the realm of the BBC and the UK P- uh, public service broadcasters, and you know with the support of really smart distributors like Banerjee. I must say, I know this is coming on the heels of the Banerjee screenings. Uh, Simon Cox and Kathy Payne have been remarkable supporters of the show, of us as well, because as you know, there's another show we're doing with them called The Heartacres. They're, they're a fantastic company. It's, it's been really wonderful working with them. Fantastic. And just, I mean, what's next for you then? Are you looking beyond Wolf Hall? You mentioned The Heartacres there. What, what's next for Playground? Um, well, we have, we have the, the, the um, Chris O'Dowd series Small Town um, in production with uh, Sky. We have Hard Acres, and th- there's an enormous slate coming up, which we will be announcing um, in short measure. The BBC Studios Showcase is the annual sales event for the British Public Broadcasters commercial arm around which the London TV screenings has coalesced into a major attraction for international buyers keen to see the latest titles from major European and US distributors. 
Having for a time been in Brighton, then Liverpool, the BBC showcase has settled in London over Monday and Tuesday, with the company this year offering an array of in-house and third-party programmes, spanning series including The 1% Club, Death in Paradise, Dancing with the Stars, Planet Earth and Boiling Point. BBC Studios Managing Director of Global Entertainment Matt Ford spoke to Neil Beatty about Showcase, The Slate, Industry Trends, M&A and plans to export live events production. Let's step back in time to last October when you were appointed MD of Global Entertainment. So that that, that meant that the domestic and international formats departments were combined. Um, what was the strategic thought process behind that restructure, Air Matt? Well, really, it allows us to be truly global. Um, so put simply, you know, the UK, although by far the biggest and by far the most important, becomes one, one part of what's a true global network. So it just makes it much more fluid and easy to move content, if you like, around that network. Um, so that that was the kind of logic behind it. Okay. And how has the, the pooling of the entertainment, music, factual and formats teams, how has that helped to kind of empower the creation of new formats? Well, it, it is pretty early days, but I, I would say that we have some specialist skills in the UK that are definitely applicable outside of the UK, such as live events. So how do we think about live events outside of the UK as well as in inside the UK is, is sort of one area that we're, we're we're thinking about. There are many different types that we could do, but I, I am particularly interested in uh, live music events or potentially award shows around the world that we potentially that we have good experience in that we could bring something to those. Okay, and um, yeah, I mean, obviously, as you said, it is early days. It's only been since October, but has this strategy yielded any specific success stories so far, or is it very much kind of lots? of kind of things being in, in various stages of development it, it, it is that you know i mean we we i mean i've got a couple of things that i'd love to talk to you about but i can't right now but um you know we've certainly got our first or i call it a sort of international format pilot in the uk you know so it's interesting to see how the uk are open to the ideas of really seriously open to content coming from anywhere albeit we need to make a british version of what is a international idea and then equally we we have an American show which we developed in the U- in the US, which we are pitching in the UK. So you know, as and when we've got a strike on the board, you know, you'll be the first to know. But what's what's encouraging is you know the sort of openness from everyone to work together, and that's really exciting. Sure. I mean, it seems to me that shiny floor shows are perhaps making a bit of a comeback. I mean, particularly with kind of the streaming services, because at Content London, Brandon Reed from Netflix was was said that he was looking for formats. Are SVODs becoming key? clients now and um, why are they so keen on this space all of a sudden is it because scripted has simply become too expensive uh i think that might be part of it but i don't think so really i think it's actually if you look at netflix they now have a sort of ad tier they have captured a huge part of the market but maybe the part of the market where they see more potential is the stuff that lands right in the mainstream and that is where a you know big dance show or a big music show would play i think um you know suits is interesting in this sense that it was a straight down the middle cable show originally in the US and Netflix have made a you know a great success but they found an audience which is much more mainstream so I think it's it's the need and the desire to have popular TV programming on on the spots that is driving that more than uh, anything else it's new audiences yeah. and do you do you believe that formats can be just as bingeable as a big you know premium drama series 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I think if if you, I mean, you know, traitors almost is a drama. I mean, you know, we all talked about it in the office like it was a drama, almost to the point of it being ridiculous that we were all walking to the office saying, I can't believe he killed so-and-so. It's like, well, he didn't. It was a game. So, you know, I, I think, um, and we have a couple of things that we're working on at the moment that, that are not the same, but in a similar space, you know. So I think unscripted shows like that create story and drama in the same way that scripted does. And I think, you know, Stephen Lambert was on the interview by the BBC quite recently sort of saying that just how everything that you experience in a drama you can experience in an unscripted show yeah no i had him on on a panel at content london talking about adapting scripted shows to unscripted um i mean that that's been a bit of a trend in recent months i wonder if you have any kind of plans yourself to turn scripted ip from the bbc or wherever into unscripted um programming well slightly the other way i mean we we have a really fun or not fun but a really interesting true crime show that we're pitching in in uh, Australia at the moment but I absolutely see the drama that could come out of that too and much more you know there's the true crime story but then there's a the, the, the conceit of it could be a long-running drama so I think making sure that we're thinking about podcasts that we're thinking about unscripted and scripted at the same time is a definite opportunity it's not going to be for every show but there will be the odd ones where I think we can do that sure I mean obviously with the kind of economic headwinds that we've faced recently I mean budgets are very much on people's minds do you think there's a risk that the budgets for kind of formats might become a little bit too rich as well? Now you've seen streamers bring out shows like Squid Game, The Challenge, 007 Road to a Million, huge budgets with massive cash prizes. I mean, do you think it might raise raise the bar for financing a little bit too much? Uh, it, it could do. I mean, you know, I suppose our experience is more the 1% Club, which absolutely plays to where I think the market is currently, which is it's not cheap, but it's not expensive either. And that's been really important in terms of us being able to sell it into a lot of territories. So uh, I think that in some territories, a really expensive show is not a palatable proposition anymore. Um, Clearly, there are some people that can afford it, Amazon, Netflix. But um, I don't think that's true of the networks in the US or, or of the networks in the UK. I think, you know, we as creators need to box clever here and come up with ideas that are, first of all, absolutely compelling formats. But they can look fantastic, but not at a price that is a king's ransom. Yeah, sure thing. You also said at Content London that you were on the lookout for perhaps a new singing talent show with a twist. Have you been pitched anything that you're you're interested in developing so far? I have not seen anything yet that uh, has got me super excited. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we've yeah. seen so many variations of that format, but with very little kind of deviation from the original premise. I mean, what what would it take for it to kind of get off the ground? Something really bold and new. Well, I think I think the, the thing that would be interesting is looking at you know is there a crossover show between you know the sort of social media platforms and and linear platforms or is there some way of or or is it just on a social media platform in in of itself you know what is the show that will bring in that younger audience that that absolutely adore music just as much i mean you only have to look at the kind of phenomenon that is taylor swift at the moment to re- be reminded that you know music remains hugely kind of powerful so maybe this format does not exist in the in the normal way you know uh, and it could live in a place other than tv sure sure and last time we spoke you talked about you talked about your ambition 
means to grow international productions and formats. Mm. Um, how has that panned out? I mean, obviously, you acquired um, STV. That must have been part of the ambition, was it? It was, yeah. So that's been great. And we're we're busy selling their formats back into our, into our network. And hopefully, we'll have some stories there before too long. And I think it's been a welcome thing in the industry locally that there's a, you know, a company that is well known and respected, but a, a sort of coming with a bit of the kind of heft of, 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 of the BBC and the BBC brand that, that serves as an alternative to some of the other international companies, but albeit with a very local flavor. So that has been really great. And there's a lot more to do. Um, we are close to closing one or two other deals in the next couple of months and then um, we talked when we talked last time we also talked about Spain where we've actually sold you know we thought there was an opportunity for us there and um, you know that there has been so we've managed to get Dancing with the Stars back on the air we've made Money Bag Bridge of Lies Bake Off Oh 1% Club for Antenna Trez so you know we, we were just not present in Spain so we can see that the potential's there now so we will definitely look to see if we can stand up a bit more home okay. production if you like and um, obviously Ghost Season 3 just launched in America. You must be hugely proud of that collaboration with CBS and Lionsgate. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because comedy is notoriously hard to sell internationally because comedy is such a subjective thing. But does the success of that brand encourage you to try more comedic projects? Um, well, we've always had so much comedy come through the BBC. So, so yes, it, it does. You know, I think we have, um, you know, the kind of show that we're really excited about are, are things like Ladhurst where we've where we've definitely got some kind of interest in that show around the world so yeah I, I do think so there's there's quite a lot of comedy that we think there's some potential for and um you know call me cat was doing really really well in the states and, but sadly you know one of the cast members passed away but you know so yeah I think it does sort of differentiate us a bit it's an area that we're very comfortable in and have some great titles so yeah we're definitely trying to do more of that okay let's just talk about reboots for a second I mean gladiator has become appointment viewing. Everyone's talking about that as well. Have, have any any plans to bring back any other heritage formats? Well, the one the one the one that's been coming back for a while is is weakest link for us. You know, I mean, we start we rebooted it in the states. It then sold into the UK, and we have got at least two more deals to announce in the coming months on on weakest link. So that's been a um, a great a great one for us. In terms of other ones, nothing that I would put in the kind of heritage format area. But I mean, I think. Weakest Link is great because it's cost effective and um, it delivers, you know, but it's a much softer show it's a much sort of more comedically led show than it used to be sure thing what effect did the strikes in the US have on, on business at BBC Studios Lost? was there more demand for, for our formats and unscripted a, a little bit not not a ton honestly the, the, the difficulty with the strikes was it, it was across both the actors and writers so even if there were formats that one could sell you quite often the presenter or potential talent were part of SAG or, or, or quite honestly coming out in support of the writer strike so uh, that didn't prove to be a thing particularly for us sure last couple of questions now before we go on to london tv screenings i mean um CEO Ralph Lee's leaving in April. You must have worked alongside him for, for quite a while now. Um, what will his uh, legacy be from BBC Studios? Do you think you must, I guess you're going to miss him? Yeah, uh, I, we are. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he's overseen an extraordinary expansion of everything that we do do in, in production. You know, it was a very different place when part of BBC Public Service moved over into the commercial arena. And I think the kind of successes that have happened with some of the bigger natural history programs 
programs around the world and where those have been sold are a kind of credit to his leadership and an example of, you know, what the BBC felt it could do outside of the constraints that it had before, you know. Okay, okay. And how do you see the state of the market um, as a whole at the moment? I mean, obviously, 2023 was was very challenging. 2024 looks like it's going to be more of the same. Is there, is there any 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 signs of optimism out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it is, you know, I've just been in America and I would say that the people that I saw there are all buying. So there is definitely appetite to buy scripted shows and unscripted shows. But, you know, it's still quite a volatile market in the sense that nobody seems particularly clear about what consolidation will or won't happen and which brands will cozy up together. And so obviously that that makes things le- less predictable. But, you know, there is definitely potential to, for us all to do business in America. I have to say that in Australia, our set of shows are all doing really well. You know, we've got Dancing with the Star has come back stronger than it's ever been since it was rebooted. Uh, 1% Club is doing brilliantly on Channel 7. We're making Top Gear for Paramount Plus and 10, Bake Off for Foxtel. So the Australian market feels really pretty vibrant for, for us at the moment. India is a growth market. So look, I think the challenge here, it's all cyclical a little bit. There are clearly challenges in the advertising market that we're all aware of. But the UK is sort of, you know, on the surface looks the one that, that that's a bit more challenging perhaps than others. But part of that, part of that is because of the successes of unscripted programming, to your point, you know. If you look at the BBC, they've got Strictly Come Dancing, which runs from, you know, September till Christmas. And then since the beginning of the year, we've had Traitors, The Apprentice, Dragon's Den doing amazing ratings, you know, the Michael McIntyre big show. You know, I mean, actually, Unscripted has been doing absolutely brilliantly in the UK. The issue that that creates is where where, are you, where is the next show going to go when most of the other shows are doing so brilliantly? Weakest Link as well is doing well. So, look, I, I can't pretend that it isn't challenging here in the UK, but unscripted programming is doing well. And that is great for all of us that work in unscripted. Yeah. And what and what, do you, what would you say this particular slate for uh, BBC Studio Showcase says about BBC Studios? Well, I think it just shows the variety of what we do. I mean, we, you know, we're still very much talking to everyone about the 1% Club and the Weakest Links or typical sort of entertainment stroke game shows, if you like. So I think what what it does show is that we're 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 moving into into different areas, you know, and we've got shows like Alan and Amanda as well, you know. So I think there are a lo- lot of different ways of looking at unscripted. I suppose is my point. Okay, and what what uh, you mu- obviously you must meet buyers from around the world. I mean, what kinds of um, content do you think um, buyers are looking for at the moment? Are they looking for feel good entertainment? Are they looking for the kinds of you know traitors thing where we have contestants trying to um, betray each other? What are they looking for right now? I I think. It is a bit more the feel good than than I mean. Clearly, there are shows like Married at First Sight and uh, which are kind of juggernauts in in some countries. But I think that you know, Gladiators is interesting in the UK. It kind of illustrates something that we're seeing in other places too, which is there is a market for co-viewing and for shows that are kind of light and positive and fun as well. You know, and that that plays a bit more into our more into our wheelhouse, if you like. I mean, that that's kind of where we're, where we're strong. Sure. And last question. 
how much risk do you take with your formats these days? Are you often looking for like truly innovative and original kind of formats or are you are you more concerned with reacting to the market and giving people what they want? I, I think it is about innovation and I do and, and I think we are looking we are looking for shows that really make us sit up and think, wow, that is different or coming from a different place. So the show that I talked about earlier, which is a kind of international idea that we're looking at here, is that. So, you know, having said that, if we see something that can do the same job as a 1% club, of course, that's fantastic. It's a kind of bulletproof format and it's a lot of fun. So those are good too. But I think typically, yes, we're looking for things that are different. With the international TV marketplace still reeling from cuts among some of the biggest US media and entertainment giants, mega-mergers continuing amidst the turmoil and smaller players struggling, this year's London TV screenings, while booming, is happening against an unusually challenging backdrop. Distributors are seeing an uptick in business as networks rein in spending on originals and rely more heavily on acquisitions and co-productions, but the long-term outlook for content pipelines remains troubling and the impact of AI has yet to be fully felt. Kenton Allen, chief executive of ITV Studios' own Big Talk Studios, sat down with Nico Franks, while Blue Ant Studios' global head of acquisitions and content strategy Lilla Hurst spoke to Clive Whittingham about these issues and more, including a reported move of MIPTV to London. First, here's Kenton Allen diving in on why the London TV screenings is growing in importance. It's supplanting or supplanting um, MIPTV as a kind of premier spring um, sales event. So depending on which distributors we're working with, this year we have shows with um, ITV Global and uh, BBC Studios. Um, we'll be, you know, um, providing material for showreels and, and putting shows up in front of buyers uh, and doing the general networking that you do. Um, not just in terms of selling finished shows, but also, you know, having co-production conversations. Uh, and I guess it's a much more uh, cost-effective uh, and, and more business-effective version of MIPTV. You know, uh, the focus is on money at the moment, as it always has been. But we're in a very we're in a cost-saving um, environment, so the cost of going to the south of France and you know all that that comes with, I think, is over. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I think that's an old-fashioned 1980s view of. Um, a global television distribution market and I think this is a much more sensible, efficient, pragmatic way to meet all the buyers. And I think the buyers, you know, we all love going to the south of France and drinking rosé and sitting on the beach, but it's an extremely expensive operation and I'm not sure how effective it is. I think it's a much more um, focused event, focused on British and, and, and some international producers who are working with these various distributors. So I think it's a much better way of doing business and um, I would encourage MIP to come over here. Yeah, there is speculation that yeah. that might happen. How do you see that working and potential for the kind of um, dynamic to change potentially? Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, I'm not, I mean, if MIP thinks they can come over here and start charging everybody lots of money for doing something that already exists, <laughs> I don't really understand the ins and outs of that, that they would seem to be a bit late to the party. In terms of producing uh, scripted in the UK in 2024, yes. there's, um, you know, obviously it's a hard time for the market, particularly for freelancers um, and people trying to get commissions. What's it like at the moment in terms of making a show? 
the, you know, the super premium shows, of which there were too many, uh, there's definitely a, a market contraction there. Um, you can't finance them. Um, we've never really been in the super premium end of things. We've, we've always, um, and this may sound logical to you, but we've always written scripts to budget or what we think the available budget will be when we put a show together. Now, that wasn't the case often in the kind of, in the, in the SVOD boom. Scripts were being written with no view of what they might cost ultimately, and the money sort of magically was found to write a show that episode one set on the moon, episode two set underneath the deep blue sea, and episode three is in you know on a on a spaceship. That those shows, I think, they'll still be there. They'll be based on IP, but it's not what we've ever done. We've always had an eye on what's the available finance and what's the show that fits that. So I think there's huge opportunity for. Um, half-hour and one-hour shows in the two to three million pound range, which I think is what you can realistically finance from a combination of licence fee, tax credit, and a reasonable distribution advance. Uh, dis distributors are bleeding from the ears on, on, the, on the enormous requests for financing, so we're pitching ourselves as a extremely high-quality, extremely cost-effective, um, scripted, production company. Um, we have a few things outside of that price range, but our, our, show, our one hour shows are typically two to three, and our half hour shows are typically, you know, hovering around a million pounds an episode. Um, the tax credit, the British tax credit, or the UK tax credit is fantastic and works. Um, and for the right thing, there are distribution partners that will come on board, and for the right thing, there, there's potential co-production. But the co-production producers have gone away or, or diminished uh, for any number of reasons, not least because there was a strike and the pipeline was delayed. So there is a glut of North American material hitting the services, broadcast and streaming in, in 24-25. So they're looking to buy for 26 now. So there's, you know, there's some... There's some there's some blockages in the in the co-production um, ecology because of a six-month strike of actors and and uh, writers. So if you're in the UK and you're a actor or a writer, I highly advise you not to go on strike. You've been part of the ITV Studios family for a few years now. Yeah. If you weren't, uh, and if you were completely independent producer at the moment. Do you fear for those companies, and what would you be doing um, if you were in that situation? Uh, <laughs> the benefits of being with ITV Studios are the fact that we have, you know, it's an extremely well um, managed um, studio by Julian Bellamy and his team. So we're incredibly well supported by them. They're extremely good owners. Um, they let us operate as a as a, as a as an independent production company with the benefit of being part of a much larger group with the kind of the support, the financial business affairs support, the wisdom that comes with that, market knowledge, connections. Um, if I was wholly independent, it would really depend whether I was running Avalon or I was running a small indie, I think. I think it's difficult. I think I'd probably be trying to find a first look deal with a studio like IW Studios. To be perfectly honest, I think I think it's pretty tough out there, and I, you know, the way you know the 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 delays in production and ordering mean that your critical cash flow becomes incredibly um, focusing, 
and it's quite easy to run out of money. And if you were just starting out, do you think you'd be looking at using AI um, to try and you know save costs and try and gain an advantage over the more established players? If I was just starting out, would I be looking to AI? No, I wouldn't. If I was starting out, I'd be looking to do a deal with Big Talk Studios uh, to come and help me grow my fledgling business. I think AI is an amazing tool. Um, I don't think we fully understand its full implications yet. When you see Tyler Perry cancelling an $800 million investment in Atlanta because he's seen Sora and, and what that delivers, um, I think that's alarming. Um, but I think AI is a tool that we do use and will use more. I think it's a huge threat to the VFX industry. Um, but I sort of think it's a tool that will just enhance what we do. I don't, as it currently is, I, I still don't think you can, you can, an AI can beat an actor. And I don't think you can give an AI a note on performance. I think it's a very different experience. So I think, what I really think is it will sit alongside um, live action as another form of entertainment. So you might, you know, I don't think audiences are going to sit down and purely watch AI. Um, there'll be elements of AI in everything, but I still think you're going to need actors and writers and, uh, you know, the, the, the human spirit and a human engagement in storytelling to really make connection with audiences. I think wherever we end up, I don't see that being replaced ultimately. I think I see it being enhanced by AI. Cut to rule our work in three years' time, and that's the end of that. But I don't currently don't see it, but who knows? We might be in Terminator Judgment Day in four years' time. That'd be a different conversation. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember what the timeline was in the, the Terminator films. And 2046, wasn't it, or something terrifying? Okay, so we're ahead of schedule. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned studio space there, and I've been writing a piece about high-end TV in the UK, and yep. some people have been voicing concerns over a, an oversupply of studio space, potentially. Not specific to because AI is, is coming, but just because of that contraction in the market. Is that something that you're uh, concerned about? I'm not concerned about because I'm not in the physical studio business. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm concerned that um, a bit of the government is doing a massive um, rate review on studio spaces and potentially putting a lot of them out of business by, I think, quadrupling their, 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 their rateable value. I think that's a problem. That's one bit of government not understanding what the other bit of government's doing. We have an amazing tax credit incentive. Why are we now punishing our existing studios with, with terrifically large um, rate increases? Um, I think there is more, we know there's more studio space in Hertfordshire than Hollywood now. Um, I think, you know, I think it's, it's cyclical, isn't it? And I think there's probably a bit of a, a slowdown now, but I'm pretty sure it will come back. Mm -hmm. And this is the part of the interview where we could talk about uh, one of your latest shows, so Ludwig. Yeah. Um, which ITV Studios is distributing, David Mitchell starring. Yeah. Tell me a bit, bit about the show. And um, um, David Mitchell, um, when we were making back a, a, a comedy we made for Channel 4, David confessed to me over a cup of coffee that he had a secret desire to play a TV detective. Um, and that little bit of information is irresistible. So we went and created a show for him. He plays a character called Ludwig. Uh, Ludwig is a sort of slightly reclusive, um, slightly Luddite puzzle and crossword inventor. Lives on his own, 
has a twin brother, identical twin brother, who is a, a leading detective in Cambridgeshire um, um, police force, and who's married to Ludwig and his brother's childhood sweetheart, um, played by Anna Maxwell Martin, who his brother married, but Ludwig's always, always uh, uh, burnt a candle for. And she calls him one day to say, your brother's gone missing, and we need to try and find out what's happened to him, so will you impersonate him and go into the Cambridge police station and try and find out what's happening? A ludicrous idea, which he agrees to do. Fantastic. And in terms of the international partners that were involved in that, did you have to get kind of pre-buys from any... Um... Uh, um, we, that, that is, uh, that is the, the classic model, the, 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 the drama funding model I just talked about, which is um, a, a decent BBC licence fee, uh, tax credit and a, and a reasonable uh, distribution advance from ITV um, Global. So we don't need to seek co-production. Um, that's why it's here. We're, we're now selling it. Um, and we're still shooting it. We're, we're we're only six weeks into shooting, so the the real that you that the buyers will see today is cut out in the first two weeks. But we don't need co-production money. We need to sell it so that everybody can um, recruit their investment and we can um, you know make more of it. Here's Lilla Hurst. So we're here at London Screenings. Talk to me about stuff that's on your slate. What are your priorities um, here in here in London this week? Um, I think, I mean, the lovely thing about screenings is uh, we have the luxury of time. So the meetings that we can have with um, buyers here, with commissioning editors and some producers too, are just that much more relaxed uh, than your kind of back-to-back MIPCOM meetings, for, for example. Um, I'd say that you get an opportunity to have kind of more development-based conversations if you're meeting with commissioning editors, just to kind of, I guess, gen up on, on what's going on on both sides, both in terms of your side as a distributor and theirs as channels. So it's really helpful, a really helpful market, I find, to just take the sort of temperature on the industry and also to find out what your competitors are up to because they're all going around and seeing each other's um, screenings. So that's really, it's just really, really interesting from that point of view. Um, I think for us, uh, the sort of the purpose this week, naturally, we've got a really, really strong slate of titles that we're launching this week. Um, and with it being in February, it's just a great time to get a great head start on the year from a sales point of view. Um, but equally, um, to really talk about how we can finesse the way in which we're working with our broadcast partners. Are there smarter deals that we can be doing with each other? You know, what we're finding now is that in, in quite a depressed market for channels financially, they're wanting to work with fewer companies. Um, we're lucky that we seem to be one of the companies that they, they like working with. I think we've got enough heft and uh, enough breadth in, in, in our offering. Um, and I think what we're all doing now with each other is just finding ways to make uh, this tricky market work on both sides so that everybody walks away feeling happy. State of the market in general. Mm -hmm. I'm, I heard at Real Screen last week that it, a lot of people were saying survive to 25 yeah. and then something that people are saying a lot this week is it is tough out there yes how tough from okay. your point of view so i think it's funny i had an, another interview the other day with some other people on this and i think how you answer that question depends on what your role is in the industry 
So it would be disingenuous of me to say as a distributor that it's really tough right now because actually it's actually quite good for us at the moment purely because channels are leaning heavily into acquisition more than commissioning original programming so of course they're coming to us and saying how can you help us out here we actually need a higher volume of content from you than we did before that said the nuances of those deals the period of time that it takes to close those deals has definitely stretched because again the uh, manpower in those channels in those best business affairs departments is stretched but look we're we're kind of okay we're having to i think be very tenacious in how we do deals uh, we are being leaned on increasingly more to invest and uh, you know just trying to find ways in which we can do that with the producers that we're working with that whilst yes it's a risk for us we're not going to lose our shirt um, it, but on on the flip side if you if I was a producer sitting here and you were asking me that question I'd be saying yes it's really tough out there right now and depending on how established I was as a producer, what kind of content I make, the answer's going to be in varying degrees of, it's awful, you know, it's some, some are doing okay, some are really worried, some are somewhere in between, it's, it's not easy, and um, again, you know, we're just trying to find as many different ways as possible to help the producers that we work with through what is going to be inevitably another tricky year. As channels lean more into acquisitions than commissions, for, for obvious reasons, is that going to is there going to be a lag further down the line where there's a shortage of, of new content? I mean, when when does that sort exactly? Of start and to that's work? why we can't go. Oh, isn't this wonderful? We're making hay because it, what, what about the pipeline? Where how does that where does that come from? And I think that's why we are again trying to really support the producers we work with, but also talk to channels about what can be done there. And I think there are. You know, there are things that could be done from the channel point of view that actually financially don't cost channels anything that could really help us and the producers with pipelines. So a classic example of that, for instance, is worldwide premieres or even territory premieres and things like that, where, you know, channels that aren't fully financing a show, but are perhaps the primary partner in it still insist on a worldwide premiere you're then going out trying to raise finance to pull in other partners but maybe they want to go earlier and and there's still some I think some quite old-fashioned attitudes around that sort of thing despite the the stress that the market's under and I think there's lots of different things that we could be doing to help that that would then allow the pipeline to continue but yeah no I mean we can't we can't rest on our laurels and go isn't this great we've just done this massive package deal with x y and z because we've got to think well how how can we do that with them again next year if if it's not coming through so I'm acutely aware of that um, and I'm you know busier than ever looking for content for us to invest in and, and represent because I'm naturally concerned about where we might find ourselves a year from now are there opportunities to work with channels? Because I presume 
your whole career has been about putting together co-production deals yeah. with multiple partners and whatever. Yeah. That feels really important now. Yeah. The stuff that is yeah. getting a 100% commission is not a thing anymore, no. is it? So even the yeah. even the US channels that used to be 100% commission take all the rights. Yeah, There's still a few. There are still a few still. Is, is this the main coping the main coping mechanism though? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, the difficulty that we have at the moment is is we have a lot of producers coming to us with no money attached and we have always said to indies come to us with a project that's got some money attached we'll help you stitch together the rest the the and that's that's been the way we operate for a very very long time the, the problem we're facing now is even getting that initial bit attached well certainly here in the uk is you know you're acutely aware even that's really, really difficult right now. So, but yeah, I mean, we're still doing what we've always been doing and we know how to do it. I think now though, as I said before, it's a case of saying, okay, everyone knows now that this is the way we need to operate. It's the only way we can operate. So therefore, please can we have some flexibility on premieres, rights ownership, you know, certain non-exclusivity non in certain areas, all that sort of thing. And I think there need to be some much more honest conversations at the table between partner broadcasters around these things, because I think quite a lot of people are still working in silos. Light at the end of the time, does the, does the business go back eventually to how it was before once this mega merger is over or that mega merger is over or this recession is over? Does it go back or is it like permanently changed? Is it, is it, are we doing business differently from now I think it's both of those things. I think it is permanently changed, but yes, it will also go back. I mean, there, there will be casualties. There already are casualties. Um, but we, if you're essentially at the bottom of it saying, are we going to get through this? Yes, we will get through it. We will, we will find a way. You know, people, you know, if there's any industry in the world that is extraordinarily resilient and flexible and nimble, it's the production industry. We saw how people adapted in, in COVID. I mean, it blew my mind how production companies in particular adapted to that situation. And I think that we will adapt again. Of course we will. But it would be naive to think that there aren't going to be casualties along the way. One of the talking points, there was a story um, before this event that MIP TV, which has obviously been always been the smaller MIP, but has been mm -hmm. struggling for a while, particularly mm -hmm. post-COVID, and has in many ways been taken over by the London screenings mm -hmm. for sort of the reasons you gave at the start, that mm -hmm. MIP TV might move to London either to sort of piggyback on this or mm -hmm. try and get a piece of the action. Does that... I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And does that does that work, really? Um, I think something, again, something has to change. And if it was to stay in Cannes, I think it just needs to reinvent itself and be financially far more viable for the people who go. Because I think that even though uh, it's a different market to MIPCOM now and you're not um, uh, having to take a stand and all those sorts of things, it's still expensive. And so I think it either needs to, if it wants to survive in Cannes in April, it does need to re reinvent itself as something that's financially more viable for people. And it, I, that said, I think it will still remain a much more European market. And look, we still have salespeople going, mainly who sell into Europe for that market. Um, if 
If it's not going to do that, and it is, for instance, going to come to London, then I think that uh, the the reason for it to be in London, obviously it would have to find a base. And I think that's what everybody's trying to work out at the moment, is if it came to London, where would that be? How would it, what would it look like? You know, I think there's lots of question marks over that. Let's try and end on a, on a, on a positive, forward-looking note for, for this year. I mean, what are your priorities and goals? Where would you like to be sort of by this time next year? What are the opportunities you're looking to take advantage of? Because we know the challenges. We've mm-hmm. just been through them. Mm-hmm. Like, the more optimistic point of view for you, yeah. for you guys, I guess, for the rest yeah. of the year. Yeah. I think, look, we want, we want to continue to lean into the genres that we know are important to us and are successful with us too. I think it's about um, building uh, the relationships that we have with our buyers, with our suppliers um, to an even greater degree. I think those those relationships are becoming more in-depth, more sophisticated. So I think we're all, if anything this year, I think it's about yeah, building an even stronger dynamic between the channels we work with and the producers we work with to help everybody have a successful outcome at the end of 2024 and to start 2025 in a good place. Um, I I would love it if we could emerge from this year with some really smart new deal models with our buyers and equally um, with, I think, a, a greater range of content coming from producers and suppliers and having really helped them get through 2024. Lillehurst speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.